Well, well. The minor prophets are often tricky for us. The small little books gathered together at the end of the Old Testament. And they're tricky because the culture into which they were written is so different from ours. And the historical situation is so unfamiliar to us. We don't know what was going on. So, let me give you a very brief recap of what was going on when Malachi received and transmitted this prophecy. God's people, Israel, had, after repeated warnings from God that their sin was going to lead to punishment, received that punishment in the form of exile from their land. They had gone. The northern part of the, of the territory, which was called Israel, went first. And then not long after, the southern kingdom of Judah into exile. The exile lasted around about 70 years. And then the king of Persia, who had conquered the empire which had originally conquered them, told them to go home if they wanted. The northern kingdom of Israel, to be honest, never reappeared. But the southern kingdom of Judah reconstituted itself. They came back. They rebuilt the temple. They may or may not have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem by the time we get to Malachi. It's not entirely clear. But they are settled back in the land. But it is a time of national disappointment. Yes, we're back in the land. But to be honest, everything is still rubbish. God's people are still slaves of a foreign power. They don't have the ability to appoint their own leaders. They no longer have kings of the line of David. And that was massively important to them because God throughout Old Testament history had been promising blessings to his people Israel through the line of David. And now that line was sunk into obscurity. And into that situation, Malachi comes bringing, according to verse 1, the word of the Lord to Israel. That is, to that little bit of Israel that was left after the exile and the return. And here it is, the word of the Lord. Now, we saw last week, Andy helpfully talked us through some of the structure of Malachi. And one of the things that we saw is that Malachi is made up of a series of dialogues. And the usual structure is something like this. In each section, God says something to the people they fire back a question, or more often, an argument. And then God answers them. Sometimes there's more than one question and more than one response. In our section this morning, there's a statement, a question, and a response. So just hanging our time this evening on those three sections. The statement, the question, and the response. And we'll see that this is a sermon. This is a sermon that Malachi is delivering to God's people. So here it is, the opening statement of Malachi's opening sermon. I have loved you, says the Lord. What a cracking opening to a sermon. When you see the Lord there in small capital letters, that, that's Yahweh, the, the name of Israel's God, his personal and intimate name which he had revealed to his people. And he says to his people, I have loved you. 
Now, to head off a few potential misunderstandings, it's not written like that because God is saying, I have loved you, but I'm over it now. God's love doesn't work like that. If the Old Testament shows us anything, it is that God's love is constant and faithful and ongoing. And it's not, I've loved you in a slightly pitiful, pining after you sort of way. If the Old Testament again shows us anything, it's that God's love is is sovereign and powerful. Now this is written like this. I have loved you, says the Lord, because God's love is a love which takes the initiative and achieves what it sets out to achieve. It's not a love which is thwarted by the reaction of the people or the circumstances of the world. He says, I've loved you. I desired you. I set out to bless you. I wanted you as mine out of all of the earth. And I have done it. I have loved you. I have set my heart on you, Israel. You people have been the recipients of my love. My love which takes the initiative, which powerfully overcomes all obstacles. I have loved you. Now, you would like to think that at that stage Malachi could have stepped down from his pulpit and walked away. That's the sermon, right? That's the sermon. I've loved you, says the Lord. That's the the first word of any true Christian teaching. I have loved you, says the Lord. And in some ways it's the last word as well. I've loved you. That's all there is to it. I have loved you. And it would be great if Malachi could have just sat down at that point. It would be great if I could just sit down at that point. You probably agree. <laughs> but that statement, that strong and powerful statement of God's love, is met by a question. You, Israel, ask How have you loved us? How have you loved us? Now, this is not um, an inquisitive question. It's not, oh, how how have you loved us? Could you just tell me about that? It's not a curious question. I don't think it's even an honest doubter's question. I think it's a question of out-and-out unbelief. It's Israel saying, really? You've loved us, have you? How exactly again? I'm reminded um, of the scene in the life of Brian, Monty Python's life of Brian. What have the Romans ever done for us? Oh, well, they, they built the roads. Yeah, but apart from the roads, what have the Romans ever done for us? It goes on. How have you loved us, God? You say you've loved us, but what have you done for us? What have we got to show for it, for your love? What does it count for, actually? Aren't we still a small, oppressed people somewhere stuck out on the edge of the Persian Empire? Aren't all the promises that we've counted on for the whole of our historical existence just falling down the drain? How have you loved us? 
A moment's reflection should have told them that this was an absurd question. Let me suggest some ways in which Malachi, should he have desired, could have responded to this question. Here are some ways, Israel, in which I have loved you. Here are some ways. Let's go back to the very beginning, shall we? There was nothing. There was nothing at all. And I, the Lord, made everything with a word. And I made it good and beautiful. And I put people in it to explore it and love it and be loved by me. There's a way I loved you. Or do you know what, Israel? Later on, when humanity sinned, I didn't wipe you out. I didn't treat you as your sins deserved. But I promised you a saviour. There's a way I've loved you. And then, you know what? Remember the time of the flood. I preserved a remnant of people. I kept humanity alive out of sheer mercy. There's a way in which I've loved you. All right, Israel, all right, let's focus on on you a little bit more. Enough of this general love to humanity stuff. What about you in particular? Hey, you know what? You were nothing as well, Israel. You were nothing. I called your forefathers, who were probably idolaters. God would have not said probably because he would have known, but I'm not 100% sure. So they were probably idolaters. And I called them, and I promised them a land. And you know what? When it was impossible, impossible, that they could have descendants, I multiplied them and made them more than the sand on the seashore. I loved you, Israel. Look what I did. And then when there was famine throughout the land, I kept you alive, Israel. I kept you alive and brought you into Egypt to be safe. And then when the Egyptians oppressed you, I brought you out of Egypt again. I saved you from slavery. I released you. I gave you new life. I loved you, Israel. And I revealed myself to you at Sinai. I showed you my will so that you would know how to live. So that you would know what was best. I loved you. And I brought you into this good land and I settled you and I gave you good kings. I loved you. And when you sinned again, I didn't desert you, but I disciplined you. And that too, Israel, was my love. And then I restored you. Because I loved you. But you ask, how have you loved us? And I find it easy to look down on these Israelites and to say, come on guys, review your history. But maybe it's better for me to recognize that we're not all that different. Maybe it's better for me to realize that It really only takes one broken night's sleep for me to start to ask, why don't you love me, God? 
really only takes one hard day or one fall into sin for me to start to think, how has God loved us? I guess we're not that different. And yet, if we were to reel off a list of the ways in which God has loved us, hey, we'd have a better list than Malachi could have given to the Israelites. Because we could say, he sent his son for us. He suffered and bled for us. He poured out his spirit on us so that we could know him and be his children. How he has loved us. How he has loved us. The question is a sinful question. And when I ask it, it is sin. Because it's a failure to appreciate what God has done for me, for us. In Jesus. Malachi, however, takes a completely different tack. He doesn't reel off a list of blessings or a list of the ways in which God has loved Israel. Instead, he talks about Esau. So here it is. The statement was, God loves you. The question was, how exactly? And here's the response to that unbelieving question. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, um, this passage can be a bit confusing for us, um, perhaps because we're not all that familiar with the history of Esau. So, let's, let's learn about Esau. Who was Esau? Esau was indeed Jacob's brother, Isaac's son. Uh, Esau was the oldest He should have been the one to inherit the birthright, but he flogged it in exchange for a plate of stew, which frankly was careless. So the blessing went to Jacob, the younger brother, instead. Jacob, who would go on to have his name changed to Israel, and who would be the ancestor of all of the Israelites. Esau was a hairy man. That's not relevant, but it is amusing. Um, And one thing that will help us with these verses is that Esau is described in the Old Testament as going away from the family home and settling around Seir and becoming the nation of Edom. So uh, when we get to Edom in verse 4, that's not a sudden change of topic. Esau, Edom, Edom, Esau. In the same way that Jacob becomes Israel, Esau becomes Edom. Now the point is, The point that Malachi is making is this. Esau and Jacob were as close as could be. They were brothers. There was nothing whatsoever to differentiate between them. They were not only brothers, but they were close. And yet, and yet, says the Lord, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. 
Now, Edom had suffered in exactly the same round of geopolitical wrangling which had led to the destruction of Jerusalem. The, uh, the Babylonians, and before them the Assyrians, had rampaged across the near Middle East, and Edom had suffered just as much as anybody else. And yet, and yet, Judah is back in the land. Israel, a remnant of Israel, are resettled in their land. The temple rebuilt, worship re-established, the covenant back on track, and the walls of the city may be rebuilt or maybe not. I'm not quite sure of the chronology. They've been restored. But the Lord says, look at Edom, look at Esau. Their land is a waste. Their inheritance, the land, is just for jackals now. Nobody lives there. God is saying, if your question, Israel, is more along the lines of, well, what have you done for us lately? Then the answer is, haven't I restored you? Haven't I brought you back? I didn't have to do that, Israel. You weren't better than Edom. <coughs> Jacob wasn't better than Esau. If Esau's land is still empty and vacant and filled with jackals, that is just because that was what was deserved. And yet your land is restored, Israel. I've loved you once again. And he goes on, if you like, to underline the point by saying, do you know what? Even if Edom sets out with absolute determination to rebuild, it will not happen. They may build, says the Lord Almighty, but I will demolish. I watch my kids sometimes playing a game. Uh, to be more specific, they're playing two games. Rufus is playing a game of build a tower. And Amy is playing a game of demolish a tower. Um, Amy enjoys the game more than, than Rufus. But the point is, he may build, but she will demolish. And the Lord says to Eden, it doesn't matter how you try to rebuild, I will demolish they will be called the wicked land, the people always under the wrath of the Lord. And when the restored Israelites look and see this, they will be forced to say, the Lord is great. And what is more, he is even great over there. Now, that might seem weird to us because we're used to the idea of God being all-powerful everywhere. That's just the idea of God that our culture has. But ancient culture did not have that idea. It had the idea of gods having localized power. And so when God says, I have power over Eden, and I will demonstrate it, he is saying, I'm not just one of your little local deities. And you are going to realize that. And that is not irrelevant to God's love. 
Because you see, what God is saying is, I'm not tied to you, Israel. It is not like I need you. There's a, a Terry Pratchett book called Small Gods. And uh, in, in Small Gods, there are a bunch of um, well, small gods. And uh, the thing with the small gods is, if nobody prays to them and worships them, they gradually shrink and shrink and shrink until there's a possibility that they will disappear from existence because they only exist insofar as they are worshipped. Not a small god, Israel, says the Lord. And the God of Eden, just as much as of you. And if they are destroyed and you are blessed, it is just because I love you. I have loved you. Well, that's great if you're an Israelite many centuries ago. We don't have any particular contact with with Edom. In fact, Edom itself barely crops up again uh, in geopolitical history. Um, You may or may not be interested to know that when they do crop up again, they are now called the Edomians, and one of them is Herod the Great. So, there you go. But as a nation, they're over. So we don't get to see Edom very much. And even if we did, I'm not sure how instructive it would be for us to survey their ruins. This was a message to them at their, in their time and their world, and not directly to us. But what I do want us to see is this. When God says to us, I have loved you, he also shows us. He does not leave us with no evidence of his love. Now sometimes, I'm aware, it is very, very difficult to see any evidence of God's love. Sometimes when somebody says, God loves you, and as Christians, can we say that to one another more often than we currently do? I think it would be good for us. But sometimes when somebody says that, the knee-jerk response of our hearts is, really? Really? (coughs) And I think a useful thing to do when we find that in our hearts is to review all of the ways in which God has loved us. Let's just run those through our minds. Let's think about that. Do you know, I I, am really struck recently by ingratitude, mine and and that of, of others, and how toxic it is, and how easy it is, how easy I find it when I have loads of stuff, to just forget all about it. And it's then that I start to say, what have you done for me, God? How have you loved me? When the answer is all around me. But I want to suggest there's something more profound that we can do with Malachi's words. It's a little bit roundabout, so you're going to have to stay with me. What Malachi does 
is he points to people whom God has rejected and he says to Israel, you're not like them, are you? You're not cut off in the way that they are. Therefore, is that not powerful evidence of God's love for you? There would be an enormously unhelpful way in which we could apply that. We as Christians could look around at the world and say, we must be more loved than people who don't know God. Let's not pursue that line. But let's think, where, biblically, do we really see, really see, what it means to be rejected by God? to be under the wrath of God, as Edom is described as being here in these verses. Where do we see that? And the answer, the answer of the whole Bible, is that we see it when the Lord Jesus Christ dies on the cross. That is where we see what it looks like for somebody to be under the wrath of God. When the true Israel, the one whom God has truly loved and for whose sake he has made all things, also becomes, in a sense, the true Eden, the one bearing the wrath of God. And when we see him there, when we see him there, suffering in our place, when we see him there bearing the weight of sin, And when we hear him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we know what it is for somebody to be rejected by God, to bear God's wrath. And then we know the fact that I do not hang in that place. That is the evidence of God's love. That is how I know that he has loved me. In the same way that Judah could look at Edom and say, we should be a wasteland inhabited by jackals, and yet God has been gracious and kind to us. He has loved us. How much more should we Look at the Lord Jesus, the rejected one, suffering the wrath of God, and say, how God has loved us. That should have been me. And now that I see what it is to be rejected by God, and realize that there is nothing, nothing whatsoever in me, it means that I deserve to escape that. Nothing whatsoever that means that I deserve for him to be there instead of me. Then I can say, how he has loved me. And this, I believe, is the only evidence of God's love that will really pierce through those dark days when we cannot see any other evidence at all, when our hearts cry out, perhaps not in this sort of cynical unbelief, but in genuine pain, how have you loved me? 
The only thing that will break through is this. I sent my son for you. In the person of my son, I suffered for you in your place. We are desperately forgetful and desperately ungrateful people. And the people of Malachi's day were no different. They looked around in a world which was full of blessings which God had given them and said, how have you loved us? And I can't condemn you because I do the same. And the joy of it is, the joy of it is, he has loved us. It is done. It is an accomplished love. And it will break through and triumph even over my unbelief and ingratitude and my forgetfulness. Because it is powerful love. The love of God for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your great love for us. We confess our unbelieving hearts. We acknowledge our forgetfulness. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who overcomes our lovelessness with your love. Thank you for him. Help us, please. Help us to live lives that worship him for what he has done. Lives that acknowledge your love. And lives that show your love to the world. Because we pray in his name. Amen.